Welcome to the Heal Podcast for all things related to Lyme disease and other chronic illnesses. I'm Mimi McLean, Mama Five, founder of Lyme 360 and a Lyme warrior. Tune in each week to hear from doctors, health practitioners, and experts to hear about their treatments, struggles, and triumphs to help you on your healing journey. I'm here to heal with you. This week's podcast is brought to you by Air Oasis. As a Lyme warrior, I know how important it is to have clean air in the home. I've been using a room air purifier, but recently had to purchase an all-home unit to combat our mold issues throughout our house. I did some research and found a great company called Air Oasis. Their air purifiers help fight bacteria, viruses, and mold. So if you've not put in an air purifier into your home, go to lime360.com forward slash air oasis. They carry room units as well as entire home units. Hi, welcome back to the Heal Podcast. Today we have Ben Nemser, and he is a senior program officer at the Stephen and Alexander Cohen Foundation. Ben's role is also the director of the Cohen Lyme and Tick-Borne Disease Initiative, which provides grants for organizations focused on helping the Lyme warrior community. And since 2015, the initiative has dispersed over $60 million to more than 25 projects, and they recently launched the Lyme X. To get my Detox for Lyme checklist, go to lime360.com forward slash detox checklist. Ben, thank you so much for coming on today. I'm excited to talk to you about all that you're doing at the Stephen and Alexander Cohen Foundation and also the initiative that they started this year. So thanks for coming on. And so if we could just start out with your role with the foundation. Sure. So uh, I'm the senior program officer here at the foundation, and I work on the Lyme and tick-borne disease portfolio, as well as some of the other health initiatives. And so really, I just I manage the grants, sort of look for the best candidates, uh, present those proposals to uh, Alex and the leadership and see which one they, they like the best and then sort of manage those grants if we were to fund them. That's great. And interesting fact that I learned recently was that, you know, the foundation, they're the number one donors to the Lyme community out of any yeah. organization. Yes, we're the number one. We've provided over 60 million in the last five years. That's actually 60 million dispersed. And then we have a little bit more pending, you know, for, for future proposals that we've commitments that we've uh, that we've had and that would include the Limex Innovation Accelerator which is a new 25 million dollar public private partnership with the Department of Health and Human Services. Right. And so could you talk a little bit about that? I found out about it in the fall when I was on a Lime Summit where it was mm-hmm. announced and since then I I took part in I think you were on it too that I don't even know what that was it's some kind of study. So Limex Innovation Accelerator really is, you know, a partnership between a foundation and an HHS. And it's got basically three parts. So we basically be sort of co-funding this program. One is called Health Plus, and that is basically patient-centered design, or I shouldn't say necessarily patients, human-centered design approaches for, for the space, right? So the idea is that HHS is bringing together with a third party. So basically a third party is, is pulling together clinicians, patients, any sort of stakeholder in the, in the Lyme space and bringing them all together to say, okay, what, what are the problems? What are we seeing as the challenges that are, each one of you are facing? And then collectively trying to understand what are the biggest sort of gaps and barriers that face the community. And ergo, that can be where HHS designs their programs to alleviate. So it's really, long story short, it's basically like a qualitative quality of data analysis study of the space. And then again, since it's working with HHS, it's basically part of their, of their work. And so it uh, can integrate into their, to their policies more easily. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that was the first part of LIMAX, but there's other parts. 
Yep. So then yeah. the next part would be basically it's more education and awareness. And then the, the third part is around a diagnostic challenge. So the idea, and that's sort of like the, the biggest uh, component of it, right? So the idea there is, it's basically like a, a challenge to all innovators out there, you know, whether it's universities, private sector, whomever wants to enter and basically find the, the next generation of Lyme diagnostics, right? So we'll, we'll be designing a competition where basically applicants or submittees will submit their technology and they'll have to meet certain thresholds and move towards like FDA approval and whoever kind of does it first gets the prize. And of course, some people, you, you, you hit certain milestones and everyone's going to, I should say everyone, but a subset will get, you know, smaller awards so that the, they can keep pushing and then there'll be a sort of like a, a grand prize at the end of it. And then the big prize for the lab community is that we get better diagnostics. Right. Let's see what comes out of that. In the lab community, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm assuming I'm preaching to the choir of people here <laughs> that, the, you know, the diagnostics are incredibly poor. Um, they're probably... I shouldn't say that they're the worst diagnostics of any disease because that's that's probably uh, hyperbolic, but particularly in areas where, or certain times during the the illness, I mean, you're looking at 50% sensitivity, which is essentially a coin flip when you go into the doctor's office and, that, and that's not where anyone wants to be in any disease. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, how long do you think this Limex, how long is the challenge for? Okay, that's a good question. So the health plus part, right? So that human-centered design part, that's quick. That's going to be in the first basically few months of, of this year, right? So the idea is that they've already started conducting the patient and the clinician interviews that you were involved in, right? And then mm-hmm. we're sort of moving now towards some of the workshops. So they're sort of coalescing all that information and then sort of getting a group or subset of those people together to kind of discuss the findings and say, okay, what are the things that we actually really need to address? And then they'll be moving into some of the sort of education and awareness stuff throughout this year. And right now we really just started the design. We just did the, the contracting with the group that's doing the competition, the diagnostic competition. So that will... We're basically designing it now, and the competition will likely open, depending if everything goes smoothly, about 10 to 12 months from now, so probably at the end of the year or the beginning of 2022. That's then going to be open. It's going to be certain phases, right? So the first phase will say, okay, like, again, we're in the design process, so this is all. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm basically just modeling this off of Kidney X, right? So Kidney okay. X was a similar project for kidney disease, and I don't know if you don't know what's about kidney disease, but similar problems of Lyme, right? You know, they basically people have been doing the same exact dialysis for 40 years, right? There's just been no innovation in the kidney space. And so they basically had the same idea and you sort of have a successive phases of the prize, right? So you'll have sort of an easier level to get in in terms of like the first round, right? So give us your ideas. What are the best ideas? Any ones that sort of meet these sort of minimum criteria would move forward to the next phase of the prize. And then the next phase of the prize would come in, uh, be something like it's, it's a bit more aggressive in terms of the criteria and or sort of a higher threshold to meet, right? So you'll have to, the sensitivity of your test would have to be whatever, 95%, you know, so you're sort of successively moving up. And so each one of those phases would probably be six to nine months. And so you're talking about the whole thing is probably going to be three to four years of time. Mm-hmm, that's interesting. Going back to the first phase that you were talking about, like the health phase and then the recommendation, what is the difference between that and like the tick task force that's like exists right now within the government? You know, like people uh, talk the, about that. Tick-borne disease working group? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the tick-borne disease working group, I mean, I think it's similar in terms of like you're going to be getting at certain issues in terms of the gaps and the, and the barriers. The idea would be that the health plus model is, is really geared towards basically the people that are actually Sick. going through the process, right? Yeah. The clinicians, the, the patients. It's, I mean, there's... I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you're talking about 50 to 100 interviews with people. Yep. And the majority of them are patients and clinicians. So I suppose the Tick-Borne Disease Working Group is 
the majority is government officials and other, you have like one or two patients on a committee of 14 right. or something. The findings, are they both going to the same well, like the, HHS or? The working group, I mean, I'm talking a little bit out of my depths in terms yeah, of the, the working group, but my understand is that the working group would be presenting their report to Congress. And so that mm-hmm. is their mandate is to basically give those findings to Congress. It's essentially, you're still working within HHS in terms of the HHS is coordinating that that group and that and that body. But this is essentially would be, you're sort of delivering slightly different products in terms of by, by the end of this. Really, the idea of this is you're going to, at the end of Health Plus, is going to have essentially like patient pathways. Like what does the patient actually experience as they go through the health system in the United States? And so you're going to have these almost like journey maps, right? Mm-hmm. So this is what happens when a certain type of patient gets in, right? That let's say just got a tick bite and has all the signs. They go through this pathway. If you come and you come a little bit later in the process, right? That you got bit two years ago when you're just kind of figuring it out, this is the process that you would expect, right? And so you can start to see actually how people are being treated in the U.S. healthcare system. And then also, like I said, there's a lot of clinicians in this in this group. So we're interviewing a lot of clinicians and say, what mm-hmm. are the problems that you guys are facing, right? Because part of it is, I think it's a big challenge to the clinician when they're trying to conduct their work, right? I think it's the hardest part is like, we don't have really good answers for Lyme. We don't have enough evidence. We don't have enough studies about what happens when people come late to the process or even with multiple diseases. And I don't know if you, if you know this, but there's mm-hmm. actually been no studies ever with someone that uh, treatment efficacy for anyone with a co-infection, right? We have actually no evidence of any person with a co-infection, right? So what do doctors rely on? Right? They're, they're relying on their, on their own experience yeah. and just the as- assumption that we make that, oh, if you uh, address this condition first, right? If you attack a line first, then, 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 the you, then you can go, go to mother. Exactly. exactly yeah. Right. So and so I think it's it's one of those situations where the clinicians, I think, are at a huge disadvantage because they don't know the answers, right? And so yeah. I, I'm forgetting the quote, but the, the idea basically around it is the most challenging thing for a doctor is a patient that they don't know what to do with, right? right? That they don't have the answers to. And so we're trying to help the clinicians do their job better as well. And so yeah. you're going to get through these sort of, like I said, this sort of journey map, understanding what the Lyme patients and the clinicians are going through. And the idea would being, again, that's an HHS product that they can then rely on. And they've done this with sickle cell disease. They've done it with, I think, Indian Affairs was another area that they did the Health Plus model. So we're probably like the fourth or fifth group that is. So their ultimate goal at the end, the HHS, because I mean, as we all know, the government really doesn't recognize chronic Lyme, right? So the the ultimate goal would be that they would acknowledge it and hopefully eventually have a treatment and the insurance Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I, do you want anything else? Do you want anything else? <laughs> Can we wish for it all? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think obviously that's where we, we, we want to go. I mean, I, I think first things first, obviously getting a better diagnostic, right? And I think that's what everyone wants, right? And whether that's even for acute Lyme, right? Or that's for when you have persistent sequelae from Lyme, you, know, you have these persistent symptoms. So w- whenever you come into the health system, you should be able to get an accurate test for what you have, right? Mm-hmm. So if you come three years late that you're just sort of figuring this out, you should be just as accurate a test as if you came two weeks after a tick bite. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the acute tests aren't great, right? Because we're studying your immune response. I think that's the most frustrating thing about it, right? Is that we're waiting for your immune response for the, the two-tier diagnostic test, right? So you get bit by tick, right? And so you've got Lyme bacteria thriving through your bloodstream in the first day or two. We don't have a good test to know if you are infected, right? Mm-hmm. So we're basically waiting on a test that your immune response basically mounts over the course of two, three, four weeks. 
Right. That's not great. I would rather be attacking the bug that's in my body rather than waiting for two, three, four weeks yeah. for it to get out throughout my body and my system to, to start to respond to it. Right. So there's just a host of things that we need to do. I mean, we're, as you know, there's been very little innovation and really investment in, in Lyme disease in 30 years. So we're 30 years behind. I think we've had in the last 20 years, we've discovered seven new pathogens and ticks that can be transferred uh, to humans. And we'd have absolutely no innovations at that time. So the ticks are moving faster than us Mm -hmm. uh, in many respects. So I don't know if this is a political question or not, but, or if you can answer it, but why do you think, um, it's quite an intro. (laughs) Cause I'm like, I don't know what's like politically charged anymore or not with this whole Lyme thing. So why do you think they're acknowledging long haulers, Mm. but they don't acknowledge chronic Lyme patients. Like that's just an interesting thing. Like the press is like acknowledging it. They know that like 10 to 20% of the people who get COVID now are having long haul symptoms. Right. And they're they're kind of acknowledging that they're talking about it. They're accepting it, but somehow they don't accept the fact that some of us, the same thing for Lyme. Like why do you think that is? Like, I just find it so interesting that. It is very interesting. I mean, I think, I mean, some of it is, is really timing, right? I think a lot of the issues with Lyme is it was a slower drip right? Mm -hmm. COVID hit hard and you had so many voices yelling at once that I'm not getting better. I'm not getting better. I'm not getting better. And obviously the, you know, the, the press is, I was very focused. Everyone's focused. I mean, a lot of us are sitting at home, just like, you know, uh, absorbing everything we can. And so you, you had tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, this all happening at once, right? Whereas Lyme, it was slower. It was like, oh, you had 10 people here. You had 50 people there. You, you," and it was over decades, Mm -hmm. right? Not to mention they often weren't considered to have Lyme, right? You didn't know that it was Lyme until you kind of went through this weird workaround through the medical system. And like three years into, you're like, oh my God, like, I think I have, you know, chronic Lyme or persistent Lyme or PTLDS. And so I think it's just the the, timing of it. And hopefully that they're acknowledging that it's going to help the chronic Lyme community. Cause it's like, how can you acknowledge one now and not the other? Right. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I I think, I hope so. I I mean, I hope I can give you a nice quote here. We'd love to learn as much as we can from from COVID, right? Because right. I, I think we're, I don't know if you've, I'm sure you're talking to other people about this. I hope you are, you know, hope you have yeah. some, some COVID folks that you can you can talk to. But I, I think that there seems to be some parallels with how the, uh, the immune response from COVID similar, seems, to, right? seems to be similar, right? And so what can we learn from that? And there's a huge investment in COVID and uh, these long haulers. So it would be great if the Lyme community could benefit that. Uh, here's, here's the quote. So this is from Dr. Francis Collins. This was just a couple of days ago. He says, quote, 28 million people in the United States have had COVID, said NIH's director, Dr. Francis Collins. Quote, if even 1% of them have chronic long-term consequences, that's a whole lot of people. We need to find out everything we can about how to help them, end quote. Yeah. <laughs> so he's saying even if it's 1% of the 28 million people that got COVID. So 1% of that fast math is 280,000. Preliminary estimates of persistent Lyme people with chronic Lyme is anywhere between like one and a half and 2 million people currently have uh, persistent and chronic Lyme. The idea being that if you have 400 and what's it, 476,000 people that get Lyme every year, and then 10 to 20% of them don't respond, have have treatment failure, then you're you're at about 50 50 to 100,000 people every year that are going to have these sort of persistent sequelae from Lyme. So if you look back 20 to 30 years, add all those up and you're, you're, you're at like 2 million people, right? Right. So if Francis Collins is saying, the director of NIH is saying that if 280,000 people is important, 
then I would argue that 2 million people is right. also important. Right. And if they do find some kind of treatment for them, it's probably going to overlap for us. Too. Yeah. And um, the big challenge, and I think the one of the things that, you know, we, you, you had first had preface it that the Cohen Foundation is the largest private funder of Lyme disease research in the country. And I think it's probably the world. We've been funding in, in all different spaces, right? In ecology, in vaccine, in diagnostics, in treatment, in pathogenesis to try to just understand what the conditions are, uh, sort of what the pathogens are doing in the body. And then also biorepositories, right? So that was one of the big ones that we found out early that no one had samples, right, to do their research, right? So to accelerate everyone's research, we had to invest, I think we've dispersed about um, $11 million just for the biorepositories, which are then going to be used for this challenge. This LIMEX challenge has been five years in the making, essentially. We've been sort of planning to do this for, or building sort of the infrastructure to be able to do this for, for a long time. Okay, so you have other really good resources on your website, and one of them is the Tick Sucks resource page. So can you talk about no. that? Sure. I mean, uh, tick suck. That's with two S's. <laughs> Ticks suck. org was our second generation of our public service announcement to get the word out really about tick exposure, what to do when you when you get bit, and really the idea is we just wanted to have a resource and and it's sort of a kid friendly one because I think it's really important that families really understand the the consequences of of tick bites and, and how to prevent and then and then manage right after a tick bite right no not to, not to be scared don't panic like this is what this is what you need to do this is what you need to be looking out for i don't think people really understand that it's it's one of the biggest threats to your family um mm-hmm. and sort of everyday american life right if your son or daughter which are having the, the the highest rates of or highest risk levels, right? You know, the, the highest incidence rates are always between kids that are five and fourteen years old. And I don't know if you've, you've known a lot of people that, that has happened to, but if, if your kid gets sick and gets chronic Lyme, persistent symptoms, right, their potential is, is really hit hard, right? You're oftentimes missing years of school. They don't get back into their normal life very easily, right? So, and these things, there's not many other parallels, right? Because the only risk, risky behavior you're taking is going outside, right? Mm-hmm. And you want your kids to go outside. <laughs> you want to get them off their, you know, their screens and, and doing enjoyable things. They're not going to go out and get Hodgkin's uh, lymphoma when they go outside to play, right? This is what they're going to be getting, these debilitating diseases that are life-threatening and, and life-derailing in many respects. I mean, I know, I know people now that like a really bright girl has had been sick for over 10 years and she's 27 years old in her sophomore year of college because she can only take one class a semester, right? Because it's, it's just so difficult for her to be able to have the strength to do it. And so just think about that. You have this potential, this trajectory that you expect for your kids. And then all of a sudden, it's just washed away. And then you become so dependent on, on you because they can't yeah. live their own life anymore. Exactly. It's terrible. So hopefully with everything that you guys are doing, because there's so many great things that people are doing out there, but it almost seems like, you know, me that's kind of coming into the world now and kind of trying to learn what's going on. There's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, right? There's a lot of organizations doing a lot of great things. Mm -hmm. And you wonder like, is there anyone coordinating like everything? Like, so we're all kind of pulling on the same oar, or is that kind of what this Lime X is that trying to coordinate everybody and, yeah, I mean, again, you 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 hit on a lot of holy grail questions, right? Right. Can so can someone be coordinating everything, right? And when we and we get master control and and and, and everything is as, as efficient as possible. We we talk a lot with other organizations to kind of think through what are those 
areas that there, there may be gaps or there may be there may holes in or we don't want to duplicate, right? You know, because it's yeah. not a, not efficient to be, you know, funding uh, in the same spaces or even the same researchers, right? So part of my role is to just kind of keep tabs on things and try to identify where those are. And that's when we when we developed our own strategy in terms of where we want to fund and where we want to put out, we put out a request for proposals about two years ago, uh, around this year and a half ago. You know, we did that. We kind of outlined where things were being funded, you know, what the NIH was doing, what CDC does, what others do, and try to identify those gaps, like where weren't being funded and, and where we think we could provide the, you know, the biggest bang for the buck in terms of helping the, the Lyme community. Because, you know, as you know, like CDC, like they oftentimes do a little bit more of the prevention type work. And same thing with NIH, they kind of focus more on sort of that prevention vaccine, maybe a little bit into diagnostics, but they don't really go into treatment. They do a lot of pathogenesis type of work. So, we were trying to identify those areas that we might be able to help. Yeah. Um, well, the fact that the NIH was willing to do this with you, LimeX, it must mean that they're kind of now open more to the idea that there is chronic Lyme and it exists. Yeah, I mean, and that there is a significant problem, right? Is that you're, I think the biggest, the biggest challenge and the biggest frustration that, that I have in, in many of these things is you hear about the Lyme controversy all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, different medical communities, societies pitted against each other. The problem is that the patients are the ones that are hurt the most, right? Because mm-hmm. typically, as you know, like if you get Lyme, you have symptoms and you get treated and then you continue to have symptoms. There's literally nothing in the guidelines to, to, to tell you how to treat you. It just basically says, try to palliate the person with pain management or other palliative things that maybe can cloud the symptoms, but it doesn't actually like cure you, right? There's, there's mm-hmm. no clear treatment or obvious treatment. And so they're, you're kind of left with nothing on one side of the community. And then the, on the other side, the patients will kind of go out into the wild west of like, okay, what, what can help me? And they hear a doctor that says, hey, I'm listening to you, right? And, and that is, run, that is yeah. incredibly beneficial, right? Is that a doctor says like, I believe you, let me try to help, right? Now, the let me try to help, you can get all kinds of stuff in there, right? You can get really beneficial things that can, can help you. You can also get, you know, people that are bad actors, right? That are just like taking money, you know? So, so and you get the situa- situation where this essentially the... <laughs> <laughs> the powers that be actually created this problem, right? If you had better treatments and you had better diagnostics, the patients wouldn't have to go elsewhere. It would mm-hmm. all be self-contained, right? And so you can't get mad at patients for for trying to find an option so that they essentially well, that's what it, it don't was, just go home and suffer. Right, right. Because it was interesting on the, the Health Plus calls that we were on, and there's a lot of different constituents on there, right? There were some prominent Lyme doctors, and then there was some people from the NIH on there. And it was interesting because obviously everyone has a different opinions, right? And so, and one of the doctors brought up that like these doctors, Lyme doctors can get harmed, right? Like they're, they're, they get their insurance cut and they, hmm. they can get their medical license taken away for treating things that are not considered normal, typical practice, you know? But then you're like, how can you blame these? Like, you're not giving us, it's not like we have cancer and we're going the alternative route because there's no, uh, there's, there's chemo that we could do and we don't want to do it. There's no other alternative. So like, what Correct. do you expect people to do? Like, you can't get mad at people giving other alternatives when there is no other solution that we- Yes, we're- the idea, like you created this alternate route. When I say you, like the, the powers that be that, that have, yeah. you know, larger levels of control, you created this, right? Yeah. If you were able to provide viable solutions for the patients, none of this would have happened. Right. So 
don't blame us. <laughs> right, right, right. So it's interesting. But you know what? We're making progress and I really appreciate your time. This has been amazing because I do think just having this discussion and like I, I was in awe on the call that I was on. It was like 30 or 40 people. I think you were on it. And just being on a call where they were asking all the different constituents, the doctors, the practitioners, the government, like everyone was on there and can hear it. That that's, was really powerful. It was actually really- Yeah, so what, did, what I, I kind of was curious, what did, what did you think of the uh, of the process so far? I thought it was great. I got off the call and I started crying because it was really moving, like to just be on there with other, there were a lot more people that were a lot more sick than I was on there. You know, there was one woman who was, you know, just gotten out of a wheelchair and she's just starting college and- but just, it was interesting seeing and then hearing like, you know, some doctors that were on there that, you know, I admire and look up to who were on there and just saying like, I lost everything. Like they came and took everything because I was, so just, and then having the government listening to that, right? So it was kind of mm-hmm. great to have everybody in the room and going through that process and hopefully it gets documented so they can read it and hear it and yeah. believe it. Yeah. And, and the key thing is one thing is, like I said, this is a third party doing it. So it's just mm-hmm. a, a third party organization that's that's running the, the whole the whole research initiative. Right. And then they'll be pulling together their findings and and presenting it to, uh, to HHS as the final deliverable. Right. And so, you know, that's good because I, I felt the same way. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. But then, of course, we have to maintain that work and kind of keep pushing. And it can't just be a document that, that they that put in a drawer. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so, uh, and again, there's, there's other things in terms of like the workshops and the other components that sort right. of, uh, come out of that. But the idea is really to fundamentally shift how HHS and, and really the country and the medical communities see Lyme and, and treat those patients. Well, I think as more celebrities come out and say it, or more people of, you know, that are in the news come out and say that they have it. And then I was on the Lyme fly-in last week or the week before. Yeah. I was going to say, I was going to want to kind of come back to that because you were asking about who was coordinating. Yeah. And there's a handful of very large Lyme foundations. And, you know, it's, it's everyone has their own idea of, uh, of what they think is the best, you know, way to go or best research or, or they like working with different organizations or universities, right? But it's nice to see that the Center for Lyme Action is kind of helping facilitate some of the collective work on the federal level in terms of the advocacy. So you're asking about coordination. That is actually one area that we are pretty coordinated as a Lyme community more centrally. Well, it was great because I think one of the asks that we were, when we were calling the congressmen and senators was, you know, even though that that law was passed, like the Tick Hagen Act was Hagen, passed, yeah. they didn't give any money. Like they passed it, but yeah, then they- Yeah, that's just sort of, yeah, it's just sort of how it is. It's like, I can't remember the word. It's like, it's not the, it's not the appropriation, it's the authorization. And then they have to appropriate against that authorization. Yeah. Um, and you're like, and so okay, well, it's great that you passed $30 million, but you only gave three. <laughs> where's, yeah, exactly. where's the rest well, yeah, of it's, it? It's almost, it's almost like, uh, yeah, like an IOU or something like that. Like, yeah, you got to like, follow up on it in the next years. But that's the idea is that over the next five years that they'd be having a, um, a lot of money um, right. associated with the Kagan. Like you guys gave the money, you guys gave the 25 million, but they didn't they didn't give any or they gave 5 million or something. It was nominal. Oh, yeah. And that, well, that's the other thing is that the 25 million is essentially, you know, we're looking towards the you know future. The idea is that it's a, it's a partnership for the 25 million. So they'd be putting in towards that 25. Right? Oh, okay, so we're, okay. Exactly. So we're sort of having to like kind of keep pushing them to do that. And you see the, the other, if you look at kidney X, uh, kidneyx.org, you can kind of see how it would look. And, and so there, I think they had 25 each. So I think it was sort of 25 okay. from the private sector, 25 from yep. government. And then yeah, go on limex.org org. Uh, and you can also see uh, a bit more information there about the project. Well, the good thing is, yeah, about the project, that's great. And then I think like we were saying, like I found out one of the congressmen, oh, um, yeah, it was Congressman 
Kevin McCarthy. So mm-hmm. like his kids have Lyme. So I think the more that, you know, politicians are familiar with Lyme, they're going to bring it up. Cause I think people realize like, oh my gosh, this is not covered by insurance. This is not recognized. And when I call people call and they're like, Hey, I have Lyme. What do I do next? I'm like, Oh, you have no idea what you're going to get yourself into. And then I explain yeah. it to them and they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I'm telling you, you're going to go and people are going to think you're crazy. They don't think it exists. And they're like, what? Like they just, when you tell people, they think you're, you're, you're yeah, and what it's and it's just one of those sad states of affairs where we all talk about the, one of those sayings in the Lyme community is like you don't get it until you get it. Yeah, right. So you have to literally get the disease to understand how difficult it is to when you have this disease, right? I mean, most people don't think like, oh, um, you have to get cancer to realize how bad cancer is. It's like no, we all kind of realize how bad cancer, how cancer is. is. Yeah, but you know, those are typically covered by insurance. You know, you there's a you have a path. pathway. Yeah, yeah, we we have. Obviously, I think of a functioning health system when it comes to uh, to cancer. Everyone is is kind of rowing in the right direction or the same direction, I should say. Whereas with with Lyme, everyone's rowing in a different direction, it's and totally. it seems to be away away from the patients is unfortunate. Yeah. yeah, Ben, this has been awesome, and I thank you for everything you're doing and for um, Alexander and Stephen and what they're doing for the Lyme community. So I really appreciate it. Sure. Each week, I will bring you different voices from the wellness community so that they can share how they help their clients heal. You will come away with tips and strategies to help you get your life back. Thank you so much for coming on, and I am so happy you are here. Subscribe now and tune in next week. If you want to learn how I detox and you want to check out my Detox for Lyme checklist, go to lime360.com forward slash detox checklist. You can also join our community at Lime360 Warriors on Facebook and let's heal together. Thank you.